Mary interviews historian, performer, and feminist Carol Simon Levin. Wendy has a Kickstarter project that you really should back. And the government is still shut down. All this and more on The Leftscape. Wendy Sheridan, and you're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hi, I'm Robin Renee. Hi, I'm Mary McGinley, and this is a very special day. It is National Opposite Day on January 25th. No, it's not. That's what it says. I know, I'm being opposite. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Opposite is not necessarily contradiction. Um, Uh, National Meat Week, the last week of January. That's oh, it. my favorite. Yeah. Uh, that sounds so very pagan, <laughs> I think. Uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day is on the 27th. Yeah, that's not a funny day. No. no. That's a serious one. And birthdays, we want to wish happy birthday on the 24th to Warren Zivon, on the 25th to Alicia Keys and Etta James, on the 26th to Ellen DeGeneres, and on the 29th is the birthdays of Harriet Tubman and Oprah Winfrey. Um, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Warren Zevon. He was an amazing, crazy person. I was a fan for, you know, since I was a kid and got to know him um, toward the end of his life, what turned out to be the last nine years of his life. It was, um, he was cool interesting character <laughs> and uh i get i get emotional thinking about him but um so birthday shout out to warren as we are uh recording this we're still under the government shutdown uh things are starting to get tense because it's I think we are hitting like the first no paycheck for the government employees who've been furloughed, even the ones who are working, they're not getting a paycheck. Oh, yes. And then they were called back to work and realizing that they're not going to get paid. Yeah. Um, and by Wednesday, who knows? Um, Cause what, what was it? Mitch McConnell sort of is making himself scarce so yes. people can't harass him. Yes, he's hidden, so they couldn't find him. It, oh, I heard about that. I wasn't sure. I hadn't caught up on that. That's, uh, that's well, of... that was this morning. Alexia uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, was trying to find him. She had a written thing, and she was <laughs> running all around Washington looking for him. Oh, right. She documented he's Hiding it. in his turtle shell. Yeah. <laughs> he's hiding. They have hiding He's, I, it's, it, it blows my mind that it's, it's pretty much McConnell is, is the one who's keeping anything from happening now. Yeah. What does he gain by this? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, you know that he doesn't want the wall. It's, it's only uh, Trump that wants the wall and it's just an ego thing with him. Oh, it he who wants knows? to create conflict. 
I don't know what McConnell's deal is, but it's it's the the uh, consequences of this extended shutdown, and especially uh, with the National Park Service, it's it's almost dismantling the entire park service because really? people are just going into the parks now and cutting trees down because their su their their uh, ATVs won't fit. Um, I heard I read that. Uh, that they're in Joshua Tree National Forest, they're cutting down these old trees, oh, you know, these terrible. thousand year old trees. Yeah, it's, I, it's a crime. And I don't understand that. If you're somebody who loves the park and wants to go into the park, why would you go in and destroy the park? Because they want to go in and ride around on their, on their vehicles. Dirt bikes. Oh. Not dirt bikes, like the, the all-terrain vehicles. Uh, oh, the big, because yeah. a dirt bike can fit in skinny places. Oh. These have to be those four wheel things. Oh, I get it. Rip up the, the ground and, and mess up the ecosystem. It's horrible. It's horrendous. And you know, people are going to the parks and nobody's collecting garbage. So things are just getting really shitty. And I saw a thing of a Muslim group, Muslim youth organization was going into parks and cleaning things up. I think, I think there are a lot of people that are trying to help out too. And there are some good, good Samaritan stories happening, you know, we need to hear more of those trying to provide free food and services to people who are out of work for the time being and that sort of thing. But um, it it's, it's pretty have, unnecessary, the whole it thing should not have to be like this. And and sure. it's really the one man because I think at this point, and, and, and maybe I don't know, maybe McConnell's really ending up shooting himself in the foot, because even, you know, because like right now, if they pass a budget bill and and the president vetoes it, if they have the two thirds votes to override the veto, then the government, you know, then he's it, it's a big standoff. And I think I think the longer the longer McConnell waits, the more I'm hoping the more his of his uh, party are going to abandon him. So he's just uh, like egging people on to abandon him by taking this stance. I don't know. I'm hoping that's what it is. I, I'm I don't hoping know that's how it turns out. This, I, I just, I, I can't figure out the motivation behind this, and unless, you know, it's not logical. It is not logical. <laughs> no. Um, another thing uh, that came up was uh was that um the a low a federal court not the supreme court but a, a federal court ruled the uh the citizenship question in the census uh they threw it out they're saying they can't have that oh yeah and, uh, yeah and that's a good thing although they're going to have to go this this particular thing will this particular uh, lawsuit will go to the supreme court and then it's going to be, you know, a nail biter. Maybe it's all going to depend on if the five, the five uh, Republican appointees are going to fall in line or not. And the census happens in 2020. Yeah, but they, you know, all of this. Yeah, and it's, this has and to get cleared up before then. Yeah, well before then. Yeah. And yeah, because the, the election is in November, and the census is going to be before the election. And. Um, the census will happen. Yeah, the, the census af affects um, the election in the figuring out the uh, districts and things like that. Well, population. that's after after 2020. They oh. they don't you know they're 
the 2020, every decade, they take the census and then the data that they collect from the census is used in subsequent years. But um, they can't, the, the executive they can't correlate it all that fast. Right. And sadly, the executive branch is in charge of the census. So, oh. um, so you know, what we really would want is an accurate count of who's here and yeah. you can understand yes. what what our actual needs are. But I think if you put a question like that, then you wind up with people not responding or or hiding or whatever. And we don't really get an accurate information about the population, but you do get um, ways for people to be potentially harassed or found out or that sort of thing. And that's um, so it's really using it for a purpose other than what we yeah, would Yeah, you, we would hope. You, but I have a question. Because um, I was thinking about this, is there some sort of um, penalty for lying to the census? I that I don't know. That I don't know. Because um, they're all assuming that everybody that they ask questions is telling them the truth. I don't know I, if that's the assumption, but I think it's. I don't know. I mean they might find out some information or they might just drive people away or, or people are, if people are fearful of being asked that question or being forced to answer that question, they might leave or something. I don't know. There's probably different, several different outcomes that could happen around. They would just refuse to answer. Right. They could refuse to answer or they yeah. could feel uncomfortable being in a certain place because they're going to be questioned, which could have someone move along or something. Uh, I mean, you know. I know the census is done. I mean, I've always done it. It's been a mail-in thing and nobody's come to the door, but I know that in certain areas they send, excuse me, they send people mm -hmm. with the clipboards and they yeah. go in and ask, you know, and they're like a face-to-face -face thing. Yeah. Um, and it's just, yeah, having an accurate count of, of our dem demographics is really important. And I, and it's like, I'm very upset that they're screwing around with this. Mm. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, uh, that we can, uh, we can, we can get this question off of the, off the census and it, that it stays off. Hmm. Mm. And yeah. another sort of ongoing big piece of news is that the FBI has opened inquiry into oh. whether Trump was secretly working on behalf of Russia, um, but after the election, you know, there's there are times that, and it's also, well, it's a couple of different things. It's that the FBI has been looking into this, um, and before they thought they, it was just sort of... They officially opened a case. Right. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And it's not only about you know, meddling before the election, but things that were happening uh, after his election, uh, mm -hmm. including the fi the firing of Comey was really what prompted it. So it's interesting that it's, um, there's been a, a much longer, uh, well, not longer, but much more in-depth um, inquiry happening all along than we knew and that Mueller has been uh, part of, of um, looking into all this as well. So that's, an interesting ongoing thing that I think we're just going to keep finding out more about. I don't know too many more details right now. But... Well, what do you think? <laughs> what do I think? Yeah. I don't have all the answers. We can't, 
you know, it's, this is like, you know, we're not going to just make shit up and, and think about what we want it, how we want it to be. I mean, we could, but it's well, not. I'm not saying what, how do you want it to be? I'm thinking, I'm asking, what's your impression so far? Well, my impression yeah, well, is that there's a lot more complexity than we know. And I don't, I don't have in front of me all the names of connections. To, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. You know what I mean? <laughs> just, but just, yeah, you... we don't want to, we don't want to get into the lower left corner of that uh, media <laughs> chart. <laughs> we really don't. <laughs> but I'm, but I think the point is that, you know, they're, there has been much more than meets the eye going on in terms of what's being investigated and that I find mm-hmm. interesting. And I just want to follow along with the news and I will mention things as I see him. Mm. Okay. I just, I, I have a hard time picturing Trump as an intelligence agent, you know, a spy. Yeah. Just- I don't know that that's it. I mean, I think that he would be involved in deals that would benefit him or yeah, people I can around see him. That. I can see that. And if that involved Russia, I don't know that he would be upset about that one way or the other. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that yeah. I can see. I don't think, I don't know that he is masterminding anything necessarily. Yeah, that's And all of this is, is way just guessing anyway. So yeah, you know. I just don't see Trump as a mastermind of anything. Yeah. But I, I do see Trump as somebody who likes to make a buck and get his own, you know, he's after his own business. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, anything could be happening. Anything. Okay, I'm, I'm stopping this segment right now. Wendy here with an exciting new Kickstarter project. My project is called Postcards Against Fascism, and I'm raising money to produce a series of 12 politically themed postcards suitable for mailing to your elected representatives in Washington, D.C. or your state house. Project backers will get to vote on the final designs to be produced, and there is a reward level where you can be the art director and have your idea produced as one of the cards in the set. There will be links to the Kickstarter on the Leftscape social media. Sign up soon before the early bird discounts are all gone. So we have a guest on our podcast today, and it's Carol Simon-Levin. She is a friend of mine that I've met through now, and she is a performer. She does one-woman shows all around the state that have to do with the history of women. And she's also um, what I'd say is a historian. She knows a lot about women's history. And I wanted to talk to her a little bit and ask her why she feels this is really important. How did you get started and uh, get motivated, Carol, to uh, um, really get into women's history? Well, I think I've always been fascinated by women's history. I was one of those people who went to, at the time I went to college, which was in the mid to late 70s, the women's history movement was just getting started. And I was lucky enough when I was at Cornell to be able to minor in women's history. 
And then I was a librarian uh, for the better part of three decades and didn't do a lot with women's history. I read some. But then about six or seven years ago, I was working out at the gym and got to talking with another person. And she asked if I'd ever heard of Emily Roebling. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I had because I had been at uh, a uh, a bed and breakfast called the Bird and Bottle Inn, and that was said to be haunted by Emily Roebling. Well, she said she was looking for a children's book about Emily Roebling, and I was a children's librarian, because she thought she was the very first female civil engineer and couldn't find one. And I said, well, let me look into this, and found she was right, that there wasn't a children's book on it. And to make a long story short, I ended up deciding to write one. And while that one hasn't been published, I ended up starting to tell the story of this remarkable woman. And people said, well, why don't you start telling it to people generally, start mm -hmm. speaking about it? So I did. And to make, again, a long story short, that has led into my researching a lot of other women in history. And the more I research, the more I want to learn about them. But uh, you talk about Emily Roebling. She was married to... She was married to Washington Roebling and mm -hmm. the daughter-in-law of John A. Roebling, who was the designer of the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. And so my very first presentation turned out to be Bridge Builder in Petticoats. Okay. But where was this in where there was a ghost? Oh, there was a mm -hmm. ghost at... It's called the Bird and Bottle Inn, which is in, uh, in the Hudson Valley. Uh, near Cold Spring, New York, where she grew up. And this inn was a stagecoach house owned by her grandfather. And the proprietress there says that it's haunted and presumes that it is haunted. I don't know why she chooses this particular relative to be haunted by Emily Roebling. But I had been there, read the article about her, and then six months later, uh, then asked this question. So it was this very interesting uh a fusion of, of two lines of, of, of bits of my life that came together and got me started on this journey to bring to life what I like to call forgotten women or fascinating women history forgot. Mm -hmm. Because so much of history is his story. We have left women out of the conversation and the narrative. Are there any other women that jump out at you that uh, are interesting stories? There are way too many of them because you find when you look at one, you find another and another and another. And indeed, when I started the project uh, Remembering the Ladies, I started a, a book, what I called it, a, not just a coloring book, so it was a coloring and an informational book, uh, timed, well, I was inspired when Hillary Clinton got the nomination uh, from the Democratic Party on June 8th, uh, 2016, which happens to be my birthday, which is how I remember it. Oh, that's um, my mother's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that day I said, I wonder about her predecessors. I wonder how she got here. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to create this book of women in American history who had pushed for political rights for women. And when I started this project on Kickstarter, I thought, I said, there'll probably be about 30 to 40 women. Well, six months later, when I published this, there were 69, and there are so many more that I realized since then 
deserve a mention that I'm planning to expand the project to 100 women for 2020 for the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote. So its full title is uh, Remembering the Ladies from Patriots in Petticoats to Presidential Candidates, and it looks like it looks at women all across the spectrum of that, 240 years of activism. I, I just uh, wanted to mention, though, that you gave me a copy of the book, and, and it's so thick with information. I'm amazed that you only started writing the book back in 2016, and that, that you got so much into it. Uh, we have mentioned the book in our podcast, and I wanted to let people know where they get it. You get it from your website, tellingherstories.com, right? Uh, or do you? You can, click, you can click through on the website. It's also available directly from Amazon. In fact, they are the ones who process it, uh, process the orders. Or if you're in the New Jersey area, come to one of my programs, and I always have them, and you can get a signed copy. How do we find out about your programs? They are on my website as well, which is tellingherstories.com. So it's exactly the same as telling his stories with his replaced by her. And right on that is a tab for performances, and it'll show upcoming performances. Okay, so telling her stories is one word. Yeah, it's all put together. You don't need any spaces or underlines or anything like that. So aside from getting fascinated by the interesting stories that have been missed out on, uh, is there anything else that really is important that you feel it's important for people to know, especially young people, to know about women's history? I think the history that we have learned is very selective. Uh, We are introduced to certain personalities, but for most of us, it's we're introduced to them in isolation. We don't see the whole arc. Mm -hmm. We see uh, one person or, or, you know, everybody knows Rosa Park, but nobody knows about the other women. There were good half a dozen women at least who were seriously involved in the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King, whose contributions have been, uh, have been neglected. And so when you see that it's not just a single woman as sort of a standout, but part of an entire arc of women who've been left out of history, and you see that in many ways it's a repeat of what happened with the abolitionist movement where women were huge uh, parts of the anti-slavery movement, and yet when push came to shove with the 15th Amendment, it only gave the vote to black men not the women who had been pushing for the rights of black men and women all along. We don't, we don't know about this. We get these accusa- accusatory statements against, for instance, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was very upset when her friend, Frederick Douglass, who'd been a big supporter of the women's rights movement, sold, as she felt, sold out the movement by saying, well, it's expediency. We can't get Congress and the states to approve an amendment for women's vote in, in 1869. So we'll settle for the black 
the black vote because we were slaves. And, and but specifically, black men, well, not it black turns women. Out that it's just black men because it's it's just for uh, black males. They've put uh, the Fourteenth Amendment defines citizen uh, as a male citizen, and then combined with the Fifteenth Amendment, it enfranchised, it gave the vote to only black males, and the same modern many modern young women who are especially young women and women of color who are accusing Elizabeth Cady Stanton of selling out or in her angry remark she wanted to say no vote for one half of us no vote for the black man when you're not including the women they forget that on Elizabeth Cady Stanton's side was Sojourner Truth who was an activist against slavery as well as she'd been born and lived for the first 30 years in slavery as well as women's rights she said that there's a great stir about the colored men getting their rights but not a mention of the colored women theirs so she pointed out the hypocrisy of frederick Douglass supporting black men getting the vote but not standing up for women but her line is buried. We don't hear about that. We just see Elizabeth Cady Stanton not supporting the black vote mm-hmm. and not recognizing that it was a very complex political calculation. So what you're really moving into is something about the it, something that we both experienced to uh, when we went to a panel discussion at the the New Jersey Now conference uh, recently that. Um, uh, People of color, sometimes women of color, are not necessarily uh, gung-ho about saying that they are feminists because they feel like they've been um, rejected themselves. Exactly, and I think that that's... I, I understand their pain. Believe me, I understand their pain because, of course, they're dealing with the intersection, intersectionality of racism as well as sexism. But I think that some of their... Actions come from an incomplete understanding of our history. In particular, a lot of times it, they, they say, oh, they, they go back to Elizabeth Cady Stanton's uh, comment that I already mentioned that she said that uh, black men shouldn't get the vote without women getting the vote. But they also go back to the Alice Paul-led march in on March 3rd, 1913, on the eve of the inauguration of... Woodrow Wilson, where she gathered between five and 8,000 women in Washington, D.C., all across the country and from foreign countries as well, to march for women's rights, for in particular for the right to vote. And she made the political calculation because this Washington, D.C., in 1913, was a very racist city. It was considered a southern city. In fact, one of the things that Woodrow Wilson would end up doing was... Uh, enforced discrimination in federal employment, and he got away with it. Um, and she knew that the the calculus, the math to get uh, the women's suffrage amendment passed. I don't call it the Nineteenth Amendment because it wasn't the Nineteenth Amendment yet. It, it went from the Sixteenth to the Seventeenth to the Eighteenth to the Nineteenth before it was actually passed. But she recognized she would need three-quarters of the states to ratify. And she would need two-thirds of the members of Congress to ratify. Actually, that's in reverse order. The Congress does it before the states. There was that math. And to do that, she needed some Southern support. And if she had an integrated parade, she knew she didn't have a chance of getting any 
Southern support for this, uh, for the amendment. The amendment did not uh, say white women. The amendment said it was the same as the 15th Amendment. It was that votes should not be denied, in this case, on the on the basis of sex. Now, what these women say, and say rightly, is that many black women would be disenfranchised after the 19th Amendment gets passed, the Susan B. Anthony Amendment gets passed, this women's suffrage amendment. But that wasn't any different than the disenfranchisement of the black man. It wasn't Alice Paul's, it wasn't in her uh, or the feminist, uh, it wasn't in their power to solve this. That was a problem that in the South, with the Jim Crow laws, they made barriers to voting mm. uh, for African Americans. There were poll taxes, literacy tests, and outright brutality. Uh, in fact, when one of the uh, Jeanette Rankin, who I portray in another program called Pickets and Persistence, War Service and Women's Suffrage, when she asks a black legislator why he's worried about w- black women getting the vote when realistically they're not allowing the men to, the black men to vote it's not that she advocates this she's just asking what about this he says well we can we can beat up a black man with a baseball bat but you can't do that to your children's nanny Ooh. it's it, it's so telling where it is now she was not herself racist, and in fact, she lived. Uh, she lived and had very good friends. Uh, when she later lives in Georgia, um, she's a, uh, she was a, a supporter of Gandhi. She's a very anti-racist person herself. But here she is interviewing a black legislator. Um, she a, a co-legislator, uh, not a black legislator, a, a Southern legislator. She was the first female member of Congress in the uh, Congress that met in, uh, from 1917 to 1918. And she's, she's talking to this fellow member of Congress and asking this, and this is, the, this is the reality of what they were seeing there. But wait a second. She was a female member of Congress before they had the vote? She was indeed. She uh, had spearheaded the... Mont- she was a, a native of Montana, and she had spearheaded the Montana... Uh, in, in the 1914 campaign for women's suffrage in Montana. It was a state-by-state campaign before we got our federal amendment passed. And in 1914, she is successful, and the women of Montana get the vote. They're, I think, the 12th state to get the vote, something like that. And um, it's, all, it's all the West. If you look at a map, it's, it's all the West. None of the eastern states have granted that, have, have allowed their women to vote. But she does get that passed in Montana. And so in 1916, she makes the radical decision. Uh, the women, in fact, in charge of the National American Women's Suffrage Association say that this is a terrible idea to run for office. They, the, the National Association leadership thinks that this is going to set back the cause of women if a woman runs for office, that it's way too soon. But she determines that she still has the network in place from the statewide campaign two years ago. And they have a rather unusual situation in that the population of Montana has grown, but they haven't yet split it into two districts. So there will, the people will be voting for two at-large candidates. And what they decide, what she says is, all I have to do is get all the women to vote for me and their favorite other candidate, and I will, 
I won't come in first, but I'll come in second because there's already an incumbent. And so she works this plan, and it works. She, um, she runs for office in 1916 throughout Montana. It, uh, women go to great lengths to vote for her. One person who's eight months pregnant rides 14 miles on a cold, windy day to vote and says she would do it again in a heartbeat. So it's, uh, it's a pretty exciting election, and uh, she becomes the very first female member of Congress and is inside the walls of Congress where all, during this period where all of the energy of both the National, Women's, National American Women's Suffrage Association, headed uh, by Carrie Chapman Catt, uh, and the National Women's Party, headed by New Jersey's own Alice Paul. They're kind of rival organizations, what we would say today, good cop, bad cop, mm-hmm. because the larger organization, uh, the National NASA, as it's called, was uh, proper, demure women who were lobbying, respectable lobbying, as they uh, lobbied the, the members of Congress. Meanwhile, uh, Alice Paul and her National Women's Party, they're outside the White House picketing mm-hmm. and saying, you know, Mr. President Wilson, what are you going to do for suffrage? And uh, he considers them quite a, a lot of pests, and, and they get arrested and thrown in jail and hunger strikes and all of those sorts of things, uh, getting publicity for the movement. And if you read books, there are some books that say, oh, it was the national organization's you know, slow and steady persistence that... That won the vote for women, and other people say without the activism of Alice Paul and the in-your-face headlines, they wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. Uh, My opinion is that it took both of them, and it really Mm -hmm. was that combination, Mm -hmm. along with the fact that women had gone to uh, to work during the war. We we entered in in April April sixth of nineteen seventeen. We enter what we now call World War One, the Great War, as it was called at the time. And women step up to the plate, and they take on many of the jobs men had been doing. And looking at those women and, and how they step up, that is one of the justifications that Woodrow Wilson will finally use when he speaks out in uh, mm-hmm. January of 1918, finally speaks out publicly in Congress and says, we owe these women, these women who have sacrificed so much, we owe them the vote. Now, he speaks out, and he still there's still a lot of opposition, particularly mm-hmm. in the Senate. It will take another Congress, in fact, and another election before it finally passes both the House. It passes the House but dies in that Congress. But then the next session, the 1918 uh, and 1919 Congress, it finally passes the Senate in, I think it's June 4th, 1919. So it's a long, hard slog to get the uh, the amendment through. And at that point, it's the 19th Amendment because everybody knows the 18th Amendment, uh, uh, the uh, prohibition, prohibition, gets mm-hmm. passed before that, as does the 17th Amendment, which mm-hmm. is the um, income tax. Mm. But both of those get passed. But an interesting aspect of the prohibition, incidentally, is that one of the things that was pushing against women, one of the biggest groups that were fighting uh women's vote were the was the liquor industry because they feared prohibition so mm. once prohibition yeah women. and the temperance women were very much associated with the movement especially after um uh the various organizations merge in in 1890 um 
so yeah, they're very much, and you can understand why temperance is so much a part of the movement when you realize how few rights women had. Um, in many states, they didn't have the right to their property, they didn't have the right to their earnings, and they didn't have the right to their children. The and the men had the right to beat their wives. The men had the right to beat their wives and to drink up all the income of the family. Now remember, this is a time when you have women and children laboring, you know, child, mm. a child labor. So you can have the whole family working in a woolen mill, and the husband has gets all the wages of everybody from the six-year-old to his wife to... Oh, it goes directly to the husband. He would have control. He was legally allowed to have them. Then he goes to the tavern and drinks them all up, and they can't pay the rent, and they can't buy food. The woman could probably leave her husband, but she couldn't take her children because they were the property of the husband. So mm. you can see the bind that women would be in and why the devil liquor the devil rum would be such a motivating force for women's rights and why temperance and women's rights got so intertwined with one with each other and so in any event once the um, prohibition has been passed <laughs> it becomes less of an issue because it's already been passed um, so that goes away uh, as as at least partially not being as strong a disincentive uh, for passage of the 19th Amendment because the 18th already happened. So it's an interesting uh, little factoid that we don't often think about, the, the proximity to it. Well, Carol, when you talk about these stories, it sounds so interesting and yet so so much like what's going on today. I mean, it, and it almost feels like we have to learn this in order to understand what's going on today. Well, I, I am. I'm seriously disturbed that I that a lot of the division we're seeing today, and of course we're speaking on the a week before, a little over a week before the third women's marches around the country, and we're seeing uh, the division between people. And by division, you mean who's divided? The leadership of the women's marches, and many of the marches in various cities are having two different marches, or an official march and an unofficial march, or whatever, because. There's a feeling that the women of color are disrespecting, for instance, um, uh, many of the women of color are associated with the Nation of Islam movement, uh, Louis Farrakhan's movement, and he has denounced, he's made very anti-Semitic remarks and anti-homophobic uh, and, anti and transphobic um, and frankly even anti-women remarks, and yet those are some of those are being echoed or at least not being denied by women of color and are so what's happening is people who should be in sympathy with each other and working together for a common aim are being split apart and frankly i'm a i suspect that a lot of this is probably sown by the same forces who split us apart in the 2016 election but do you, do you mean like russians could be Russians. It could be any force that is looking to divide and conquer because we are being asked by many young people in the movement to, within the movement, confront perceived sexism and, sorry, perceived racism in the feminist movement. And in fact, many of the young members of the movement are claiming that feminism, they're refusing to use the word feminism, they're using womenism, and are saying that we have to address 
our demons within the movement before we address the out or that they're as important to address as anything else. And my concern is that we are not at a time when we can be relaxed. We have so many enemies without that the conservative Republican movement led the Trumpers, led by the Trump, this Trump administration is trying to strip away so many of our hard-earned rights, the right to illegal abortion, uh, our, our, our political voting rights, our uh, many of the protections in the law, the consumer financial protection bureau birth uh, control birth control mm-hmm. uh, but elizabeth warren's many of the families that are close to the brink are single parent families and who, mm-hmm. who most of those are women led there's so many attacks right now on women particularly uh i mean others as well our environment and everything else but we can, while i don't deny that there are some things we need to look at within the movement i think that because we don't know our history, we are being... Doomed to repeat it? We, well, <laughs> yeah, and we are being pushed by outside forces to internecine warfare, rather, which takes our, 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 our eyes off the outside forces that are attacking us right now. And if we spend our time, as I so much am seeing right now with the division in the move in. In the uh, in the marches and the division in the feminist movement, we are we lose the energy to fight the very real threats that we have, mm-hmm. and I think that part of that division is propelled by the fact that we don't understand our history. Those same people who claim that, oh my gosh, the initial movement was uh, white women of privilege. And therefore, we have to do all this self-analysis. Forget so many women who were part of that movement who were not. Um, in One of the people that doesn't get enough mention is Florence Kennedy, who for a number of years was, was Gloria Steinem's sidekick in now and very active in propelling the movement there. And while there are some truth to the fact that many of the people in leadership were white women of privilege. Part of that is that they were the ones who had time. The black women, the women of color, the uh, Latina women, so many of them had two jobs and were looking after kids. That What, what era were you saying? I'm talking right now about the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that movement that, that grew out of the feminine mystique mm-hmm. was predominantly initially white women because frankly they had time on their hands mm-hmm. but it's a movement that has grown as our eyes have opened has become much more intersectional and to blame women of a period for to, to apply 21st century standards to people from 1910 or 1960 is is not realistic, re- realistic or rational. It, mm-hmm. it, it, we have to realize what time they were in. I also like to look at the fact that the women of the period, you have to look at the way the p- women of the period responded and, rec- and, and their recognition. I particularly think of, of Mary Church Terrell, 
who was this unbelievably un- accomplished woman. And what who, era was she? She, uh, she was born in 1863 to, in the South. To, um, so she was born in slavery. Yeah, 1865, she's two years old when the Civil War ends. Her parents emerge from slavery, and her father must have been an amazing entrepreneur. I, uh, he, he made, he's considered probably the first black uh, millionaire in the, in the country, or at least in the South. He earned it through real estate. I'm not really clear on exactly how he earned it, but he became very successful. In any event, he's successful enough that by the late 18. Uh, 60s, he's able to send his daughter off to a good boarding school in Ohio, and then she ends up going to Oberlin, which is the first co-educational, co-educational and interracial uh, college in the country. And she's one of the first black women to attend. And she's a real slacker. She uh, she studies Latin. You're being facetious. I'm being very facetious. <laughs> she studies uh, French, German, Latin. And one Greek. of the uh, Greek, yeah, <laughs> and then she uh, becomes uh, writes extensively, becomes the editor of the Oberlin Literary Magazine, I think it is, and uh, and then when she gets after she gets her bachelor's degree in what are clearly humanities, she goes off and gets her master's there a couple of years later in mathematics. So I like to say that if the SAT had been invented in those days, she had would have had a double eight hundreds on uh, mm-hmm. English and math. She's just incredible ends up becoming very active academically, principal of a school, etc., until it's all cut off, as it was for so many women in those days when she marries. You're not allowed to work. Um, she becomes, uh, she leaves uh, paid employment when she marries in 1891, but then becomes exceedingly active in a number of things, including the establishment of the Nas- uh, a National uh, Association of Colored Women's Clubs. Um, she becomes the president in the 1890s of those and is also one of two women involved in the National Association for Colored People, mm-hmm. uh, along with Ida Wells Burnett, uh, who's uh, an incredible uh, advocate, anti-lynching advocate and journalist. In any event, it's very interesting to see these two women's reactions. Oh, I should say in 1904 she attends, she's the only black woman to attend the, an international women's conference in Germany, where she gives a speech, first in German to, uh, for her hosts, then in French, and finally in English, as I say, very accomplished. But in any event, she and um, Ida Wells Barnett are both uh, are in a group uh, of, of black women activists uh, formed uh, in Washington no, just formed, I guess it's national, in uh, January of 1913. And then when Alice Paul, Paul tells black women that they have to uh, to march in the back of the parade, uh, Mary Church Terrell ends up marching with this group of women in the back of the parade, even you know with these accomplishments. And Ida Wells Barnett, she slips in with the Illinois delegation between two white women who are very supportive of her her doing this. So they have, one of them sort of goes with the flow with Alice Paul and the other uh, defies it. But in both cases, you're looking at, you're looking at 1913. Mm -hmm. We're talking about this incredible woman who says, okay, I understand Alice Paul's political thinking here. I'm going to 
go with what she requests. And then you have the other one who says, I'm going to defy it. Mm-hmm. And you, you, both women, I, you know, I, I, I understand where both women come from. And I think as we look at it in 1913, we have to see that that, it, we were talking in 1913 of an entirely different era than we are in 2019. And by that, you mean that Alice Paul was thinking it was going to be a problem if she did not put the uh, black women in the back of the parade. It was the same strategy that Frederick Douglass told Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Realistically, if we ask for women, in, in 1869, 15th Amendment, he says to, to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, if we ask for women to be enfranchised at this point, we will both lose. Neither of us will get the vote. Alice Paul, in 1913, is looking at a parade, which she in wants to, in, in, in Washington, D.C., which is mm-hmm. a very southern city at that point. She's looking at doing a parade there and realizing that if she alienates white suffragists from the South and white politicians from the South, there is no hope that she will get the women's vote amendment passed. So in both cases, there's the old saw that the two things you never want to see made are sausage and legislation. In both cases there were decisions made for political expediency. And we may not like those decisions, but those are the kinds of things that happen in order to propel something forward. So in Frederick Douglass's case, he, you know, he said, you women are going to have to wait your turn for the vote because we can't get it for you now. We can only get it for black men. And as Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, if if the vote if the word male be inserted into the Constitution, we will have to wait a hundred years for our vote. She was only wrong by fifty, and she never lived to see it. Nor did any. Well, I should say there was only one of the two. Uh, there were about three hundred people at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 where women first demanded the vote. And of those 300 people, there was only one person left. She had been a 19-year-old seamstress named Charlotte Woodward. Who was alive when it happened. Who was, sti- who was alive, who attended the, the, um, the 1848 convention and was still alive. She was a very frail 91-year-old in 1920 when the vote, the 19th Amendment, was finally passed. And sadly, she never got to vote because she, there was no such thing as a mail-in ballot, and she was too frail to go to the polls. Oh, that's sad. But you know, Carol, is it's so interesting to hear there's so many stories that we could talk for hours and we have a limited time. So I want to recommend people getting your book oh, and you to so read much. this, tellingherstories.com. It's tellingherstories.com or going directly to Amazon if you or Baker or Barnes and Noble or any of your favorite and online. The name of the book. It's called Remembering the Ladies. Which is a quote from Abigail, Abigail Adams. Abigail Adams, right? who famously told her husband, who was at the, um, at the uh, uh, 1775 convention, uh, she, uh, he, he was there with all the other you know, American patriots, as we call, writing up articles to send to uh, King George, demanding no... no uh, demanding no, no, our taxation, free, no taxation without. without representation, basically. And he, uh, she wrote to her husband, uh, James Adams, 
she said, uh, in the new uh, laws of the new nation, I desire that you remember the women. Uh, remember that all men would be tyrants if they could. We will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation, which is basically exactly what the men of the Continental Congress were sending over to um, to King George. And he writes back, and I quote, she's so saucy, and the new laws of the new nation would not be any friendlier to women than the European laws were. Uh, and it would take... It would take 240 years. We're still pushing for it. The mm. Equal Rights Amendment is still not passed. Mm. That was an amendment, by the way, that was first proposed in 1923 by Alice Paul, who after mm. after she won the you know, after we won the right to vote in in, uh, in 1920, she went to law school and then she got a um, then she proposed the. Equal Rights Amendment in 1923, and she fought for it the rest of her life. She dies in, I think, 1977 or 79. In her entire life, she fights for this amendment, but she did not live to see it pass, and we are now, this year, starting to see new new energy, that it was just passed in one state. Was it Illinois? I think it was just passed in Illinois, and uh, Virginia has it under consideration in someplace else. And one of the big questions will be right now what happens because there was a essentially the Congress put a seven year limit on passage, and of course that that ended in was it the early eighties I think. So we don't know what will happen once we have thirty eight states, which would be three quarters of the states, pass it. Whether Congress will reopen the consideration of the amendment, whether they'll have to resend it through the states. It's, it's unprecedented territory in a way because there was never a limitation before. The 27th Amendment, which was first proposed as part of the Bill of Rights, what we now call the Bill of Rights, there were 12 amendments mm-hmm. uh, there, we only have 10, and which has to do, I think, with pay for Congress, something pretty obscure. Nobody knows Mm. the 27th Amendment. In any event, it was not passed until like the 1960s, but they never put a statute of limitations on that one. Mm. So when it it got the 38th ratification, 200 years or almost 200 years after after it was first proposed. Well, Carol, this is just, we could go on and on. (laughs) We'll just have to have you back. (laughs) Thank you. I just, I love... One of the things that I love is there's so much there there to history. And so many of us had bad history teachers mm-hmm. uh, who made it all dull. And I was fortunate enough, I had you know a few teachers that it was all names and dates, but I had some that made history so exciting. And that's mm-hmm. my goal in life. Mm-hmm. In fact, I tell all these programs in the persona of one of the people there mm-hmm. to my goal is to bring it to life and to mm-hmm. tell you those fascinating backstories and, and factoids. That well, this this website, tellinghersstories.com, we can find out information about your one-woman shows there, too. You can. Yes. I have a list of my performances, and uh, if you are in or near New Jersey, uh, I do them there. Uh, and if you ever want to have me somewhere else, get in touch with me. Hello, this is Robin Renee. You can find me online at robinrenee.com. And my music is on iTunes, CD Baby, Pandora, Spotify, and elsewhere around the web. So check it out. 
And you can like me at facebook.com slash Robin Renee Fan. Tweet at me at Spirit Rock Sexy and follow me on Instagram at Robin Renee Music. I would love to hear from you. So uh, you may be aware that I have a Kickstarter project going on now. Um, it's called Postcards Against Fascism, and it's so I can produce a set of 12 politically themed postcards that you can use to mail to your representatives in Congress and also your state house or the president or whoever you want to mail a postcard to to let them know you know, if they're doing a good job, if they're doing a bad job, if they're, uh, um, if there's a specific issue that you want them to vote a particular way on, you know, any reason that you would write to them. And, uh, and the reason I pick postcards is because they don't have to get screened through the, um, the congressional mail screening thing where they check all the letters for you know, anthrax and smallpox or whatever, whatever people, you know, what unidentified white powder that gets put in envelopes and then everybody goes into lockdown for a day and, and all that stuff. So, you know, it's good to avoid that. <laughs> so postcards go right through. So they get to them faster. Um, and they're, you know, a little cheaper to mail. And from what my research has told me, you know, and also the invisible guide has said that, you know, actual mailed, pieces to Congress gets more uh, attention and it has more weight than like an email or a tweet or something like that, because you've actually had to sit there and write it out by hand and spend, you know, a few cents to put a stamp on it and physically mail it. So they know that you really, you know, cause it doesn't take a lot of effort, you know, to tweet something on the toilet as we've discovered. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad image. <laughs> Well, you know, our, but, our Twitter yeah. in chief, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that's really cool. And I, I do like your postcards a lot. So I'm excited to see what you come up with for these. Um, I remember the last set, what were those called? Those the were, they were just, uh, they were just, they, I had uh, made them originally for the uh, Ides of Trump that's campaign. Right. So everybody was supposed to be mailing um, our president some cards to let him know that we're not happy he's in white in the white house <laughs> and on march 15th right so it was yeah, like march uh, 15th of that, 2017 yeah. yeah that was great mary did a uh, a reading of julius caesar in protest in new york city <laughs> on around that date and uh we some of us like filled out postcards and stuff there so it was really cool to have, an, awesome. have yeah. an event around it yeah, the uh, the first print run of all of those um, is pretty much sold out for. So it was like, I don't want to just reprint the things I had just done. I want to do some new stuff, and and I figured doing um, a set of twelve so everybody could write to their people once a month, um, you know, to say, hey, we're paying attention now. You can't just slide. Nice. <laughs> So there'll be some of your drawings and some photography or how? Yeah, how well, I don't know about how much photography. I'm not okay. really, I don't think I'm a good photographer. Um, I finally admitted that to myself recently. Okay. <laughs> well, that's know, the first step. No. Yeah, the first step is to realize you're not Ansel Adams. Yeah. It's like, 
Um, now I, I, it's going to be, you know, some artwork and maybe some, uh, some text or sayings, um, you know, maybe play on, you know, resistance or I don't know. I don't know yet. It's, it's still, it's still percolating. I have some time. Um, it takes after the, the project closes, it takes, what is it? Two weeks before the money comes in and I will finish everything up then. So when I get the money, it goes right to the printers. So everybody's getting fulfilled. This, this project will be fulfilled within like a month or so after it closes, which in Kickstarter terms, I think is really fast. That is cool. <laughs> and if you want to be an art director, I believe one of your rewards oh, is, yeah. uh, you know, if, if you have an idea and want to really um, support the project, you can become an art director and, and yes. help. When yes. he uh, creates something. Well, so yeah, hopefully you're not going to be a, a dictatorial art director. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, if you do have an idea um, and you want to see that card printed as part of the package, uh, we do have a reward level where you get to tell me what to do. And um, we'll be communicating um, a lot during that two week funding, waiting for the, the money to come in period. And uh and yeah, it'll be fun. Um, it's, and you'll also that, that reward, uh, you get way more than 12 cards. You're going to get a whole lot of cards because <laughs> it's your design and your name will go on the back of the card as art director, your name. Um, so unless you really don't want that, uh, and I do have, um, caveats can't be anything. Um, I don't think, I don't think if our, if the postcard has lots of cursing on the, the fancy side that anyone's going to really look at it and, and, uh, no nudity. I think we can, you know, if you really want to commission me to draw naked things, uh, we could talk privately. <laughs> <laughs> so where can we find this? It will be on our website. Yeah, or it's on, it's on Kickstarter and, and we'll have links on our website and, uh, and on our face, we'll have links for this on all of the leftscape social media. <laughs> because I'm going to be biting my nails until we hit the goal. Right. Um, and if we do hit the goal, I have stretch goals. I have secret stretch goals, um, which I might mention now. Uh, I came up with one this morning. Um, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. You said secret. Do you want, do you want a secret? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why not? If you guys, you, you handful of people listening to this can, uh, can be in on the secret because it's not going to go up on the Kickstarter page until, until we've hit really close to the goal, the, the first funding goal. Um, and I, I haven't figured out what the number is, but the first stretch goal, I'm calling it the backers dozen instead of the baker's dozen. <laughs> so we're going to get a third, like the card. smoking gun. No. Yeah. It's like the smoking gun. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it'll be a 13th card. Um, oh, nice. And that one might be designed specifically to send to the president. I don't know. Uh, cause he's, you know, cause we've got Congress, we've got Congress covered, but we don't have a special, if you want to mail something every month to everybody, you know, <laughs> that's including the president. So he would need another card. So that would be the 13th card nice. um, <laughs> or, or something like that. But yeah, I thought calling it the backers dozen was, uh, I amused myself this morning in the shower. What can I say? That's a good one. I approve. <laughs> so hopefully we can get to that. Um, yes, please support I mean, this. This is going to be great. Yes. 
You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Find us online at leftscape.com, on Twitter at Leftscape, and on Facebook at Leftscape. The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. New episodes every Wednesday. 